Welcome to the Genre Wars Book Podcast, which exists to help you read wider and find great new books where you didn't expect them. We chat about the best stories from people's favorite genres with the authors who write them. I'm your host, Tim Hawken, and today I'll be talking queer sci-fi and fantasy with Kate Hazel Hall. Kate is an Aussie author doing big things internationally, recently winning both the Forward Indies and Goldie Awards for a debut novel, From Darkness. In addition to writing, Kate is also an expert on magical realism, is a cold water surfing mermaid, and can absolutely pour the perfect pint of beer when the occasion demands it. Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. I know someone who would um, challenge you on the Kate, can Kate pour a perfect pint of beer question. <laughs> but, well, um, it's funny because... But- yeah, I'm so I'm so <laughs> delighted. I'm so delighted to have you on the show. Um, and I mean that's kind of an inside joke because we met in a bar many many years ago mm-hmm. that you worked at, and um, and then we caught up. We I, we just ran into each other in the surf in in my old hometown. Mm-hmm. I guess it must have been two years ago now, and reconnected. And uh, and I was like, "What are you up to?" And you're like, "Oh, you know, I've got a PhD in literary studies now, and my debut novel's just about to come out." And I was like. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Uh, you know, it's so amazing to see um, people that you kind of, I mean, it was a surf bogan bar kind of thing. And then to have someone so into the the nerdy things that you're into and probably didn't even realize back then is, is really cool. So um, thank you so much for coming onto the show and um, congratulations on all your recent success. It's pretty amazing to see. Thank you so much, Tim. Um, and it's, it's really delightful to be here. I was telling someone the other day that at said bar, you know, you were too young to drink that beer. And I remember <laughs> serving you lemonade and um, and giving your parents a drink back in the day. And then when I heard that you yourself had started writing and that you were having success publishing dark fantasy, and I just, all of a sudden I thought, oh, Tim, I, I remember Tim. And then it was it was so good to run into you in the surf and to talk books. And, and I remember that day and the sun was out and Jan Jack was doing what Jan Jack does, you know, which was not much in terms of surf that day. But, um, yeah, how, how lovely to be here. And isn't life strange the way it steers you back in these serendipitous kind of spaces? Thank you for having me. Oh, no worries. And, you know, even more serendipitous is you teach genre studies at university at Deakin University so they're the perfect person to have on the show and it's funny because I didn't didn't know that until we we spoke a little more um so when it comes to genre like how do you how do you teach and how do you think about genre in terms of like how it's approached and how you unpack it um and how you kind of dissect different genres like what does that course kind of look like it's such a good unit. It's a first-year unit, and um, so I pay immense tribute here to the person who wrote the unit, who's a good friend of mine, um, Maria Tackerlander. And in the study notes for the unit, she says the, the great thing about genre is that we already know so much about it, and the reason that we do is that we are born into a world that's saturated with stories. So we come to genre already very culturally literate, without even knowing it. And that's why when you go into a bookstore, you know intuitively where to find, um, you know, the crime section or the romance section or the literary fiction section and what that looks like, even if there weren't signs 
to tell you where those sections are, you know, or when you're browsing a streaming service, um, you know, we kind of know instinctively what we're looking for because we recognise the codes and the conventions and the tropes and the stereotypes and all of those things that, that go into making up a genre text. So we kind of start from there, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you say like the codes and conventions, like go and uh, challenge people to go and have a look at, at a thriller section and see how many dark figures running away or towards something they see on, on you know, those kind of books um, covers. And it's just like when someone points, pointed it out to me, I was like, oh, my God, there's so many of them. Yeah, absolutely. We've, um, we've just finished looking at gothic horror and um, at the end of the unit we'll be sort of doubling back to look at gothic romance which is similar but different and one of the things I really like to do is to show the students um, the the 50s and 60s into the 70s pulp women's romance novels that are gothic romance novels and they all all of them have um, pictures of young women usually in a nightgown or some sort of flowing see-through dress of some description running away from a castle or a Victorian mansion at night under the full moon with one lit window and there are oftentimes bats or wolves or you know supernatural <laughs> creatures of some description and it, and I wonder what that that sameness kind of offers you know it must offer people a kind of comfort and pleasures of recognition perhaps I don't know yeah I think so it, it's it's like okay I know what to expect but then, like, I've, I almost feel like, and I, I think I've said this before at some points in the show, is the really great um, genre writers that that stick out are the ones who know those conventions and then flip them and make them interesting and and turn it into something unexpected. So they're delivering what you expect, but in a very unexpected way. And that's, those are the stories, I think, that, that stick with you. Um, Neil Gaiman is one one writer who probably springs to mind who does that that side of things really well, um, and so he really does. Yeah, I'm just I'm reading rereading um, Trigger Warning at the moment. His collection of short stories, mm. and um, as always, I'm just delighted and and slightly terrified um, at multiple points throughout. But but he he marries all sorts of things together. You know, folklore, fantasy. Um, sometimes science fiction, and, and he breaks and he bends and he plays with genre in a way that, as you say, that the very best writers do. And that's how, you know, one of the one of the reasons that genres change and transform over time. The other reason is that they're um, incredibly um, sensitive to and receptive to cultural change and, and ideological change. Yeah, that's right. And so, um, just before we started recording, you were talking about how you're you're teaching um, or you're looking at the crime genre at the moment. And I know we we are going to go and get into to queer sci fi and fantasy at some point. But um, I found that really interesting. Um, you you're basically saying that you look at a classic work and then you look at a contemporary work and how they kind of um, work side by side. Can you just run through that? Because I thought that was really really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way the unit works is that we we pair a so-called classic example of a, a genre with a revisionary or contemporary example of that same genre. So in these two weeks, we look at Ray Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, um, which is basically just a symphony of homophobia, misogyny, racism and anti-Semitism. Um, 
And then we pair that next week with the wonderful The Monkey's Mask by Australian um, author and poet Dorothy Porter. And so what Porter does is that she she takes the figure of the hard-boiled detective who conventionally is usually a very manly man, you know, he's um, emotionally buttoned up and he works outside of the law but alongside it and he's got his own sense of justice and he resists most of the time the temptations of the femme fatale, the fatal woman who's there to throw red herrings in his way and, and distract him from his investigations. So what Porter does in The Monkey's Mask, which is a novel in verse, so she's already breaking genre boundaries by mixing, um, you know, fiction and poetry, which isn't so sort of radical these days, but certainly was when Monkey's Mask was published. And then what she uses the figure of the hard-boiled detective to play with expectations around genre. So Jill Fitzpatrick is a female PI. She's also a lesbian and she falls really hard for the lovely Diana Maitland, the femme fatale, um, who is still a woman. And it's set in Sydney, you know, which is great too, because it moves the conventional settings of hard-boiled, you know, away from LA, for instance, and, and the US back to Australia. And she does wonderful things with that. Yeah, so like basically what, and kind of what we're saying before is that flipping of a trope and making it interesting. So she's kept the trope of the the femme fatale, but probably a lot of people who read have read hundreds of those books are a little bored with, and they're like, oh, hang on, you know, this is really interesting, and it's a way to refresh and um, re-examine that kind of thing, um, and and in a very entertaining way, of course, as well. Mm. Uh, so, Kate, you obviously have a massive love for books i'm interested to know just a bit more about your personal history and how how that's um how that's evolved over the years and from you being a a lover of books to studying um doing literary studies but now to to becoming a writer what's what's that journey been like and like where did it all kind of begin for you in terms of falling in love with reading (laughs) um this is going to sound so predictable, but but I've always loved writing as much as I've loved reading. And I've always written creatively, but I didn't start publishing creative writing until my early 30s. And one of the reasons for that was that I was writing um, a theoretical PhD and publishing or trying to publish as many kind of academic papers and stuff as I could from that Um But also, I don't think I really thought of myself as a creative writer. So I ended up um, leaving the university for a few years um, to go school teaching. And I just, I did not love it. (laughs) In fact, I didn't like it at all. Um, And so my answer to that, perhaps bizarrely, was to write a young adult novel. And I did that in the early hours of the morning, you know, when I had time to do that, put that together over about three years. And that was the manuscript that became from Darkness, my, my debut novel. And when I first wrote it, I was um, in a heterosexual relationship. I didn't really know that I was gay at that, that time, or I kind of knew, but I hadn't admitted it to myself. So I wrote From Darkness as a straight romance novel. It had a girl called Ari and a boy called Miles, and they were living in the Otways, and they fell in love. And the twist is, of course, that he, um, Miles was not really supposed to be alive and um, it was kind of formulaic and and had a lot of conventions that I was reading 
in the, the YA text that I was reading while I was teaching high school English. So anyway, I, I brushed it up and I sent it off to a few places, not thinking anything would happen. And Alan and Unwin picked it up out of the slush pile and they held on to it and they held on to it and they held on to it for like about five months and it went to all the meetings and then they said no and I was a bit heartbroken about that. And at the same time, I'd entered it into this international competition that Harper Voyager were running at the time. And I think from about 4,500 entries internationally, got down to about 35, the last 35. Wow. So you want to bet I was checking my phone every five minutes. Yeah. And then again, it just, it just missed. So I put the novel away, chucked it in the bottom drawer, um, relationship with my ex wasn't great and I knew I had to get out and I did get out and so we fast forward a couple of years after that and I'd finally come out as a lesbian I was feeling good about who I was but I was still figuring things out and I remembered the manuscript in the bottom drawer and I went I might dig that out and have a look and I got from darkness out of the bottom drawer started having a look and I realized the reason it's not working is because I just wasn't invested in this story and in the relationship between Ari and Miles. Mm. And that's when I knew it should have been a lesbian love story all along. And so I rewrote it. And as soon as I rewrote it, and it was a women loving women romance and sent it off to a publisher, I got an offer straight away. And that publisher was um, Duet Books, which is the young adult imprint of Interlude Press in New York. And they only publish LGBTQ um, stories, particularly romance stories. So it was really exciting. And it felt like as soon as I was brave enough to admit to myself and then to the world the things I'd been repressing for a very long time, the writing started to keep pace with that and then it found a home in the world. Yeah, it's almost like that that kind of cliche, write what you know sort of thing. And, you know, it's funny because even like for, I've got books set in hell and this book's got the underworld in it. And, you know, there's the old joke like, oh, yeah, so when was the last time you went to the underworld? But you obviously know mm. Greek myths inside and out and love them. Um, and, you you know, you've obviously gone through that journey as an emotional journey that these characters have gone on, on to. So, and also I have to say that, that the location is just done so wonderfully, like growing up in a basically the same spot um mm. you just see these little and even then some of the names are just you know having smiles to myself and um <laughs> and uh yeah really 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 great so to, i guess to any any other writers listening out there that's a that's a really heartening story to know that something that almost made it and almost made it could evolve into something that is now an award-winning debut novel for you over the course of like you're you're an oversight overnight success that's it's just been a really long night. <laughs> Thank you. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. Um, no, it was the process of rewriting it was really interesting because it wasn't just about changing pronouns. It's about a completely different way of seeing the world. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, mm-hmm. I guess that probably segues nicely into into queer fiction. Um, like, so. LGBTQ fiction, queer fiction, is that, is that a synonym? Is, that, is it basically just a shortcut to say it? Like what, what would the terminology that you would use or is, is kind of general usage out there? Uh, now we, we sail into 
the archipelago of terminology, Tim. Um, so <laughs> track yourself to the mast yeah. and I'll, I'll see what I can do. Okay, so it is it is a tricky question and I guess it's interesting in terms of genre. So if you, um, you know, if you are dragged kicking and screaming onto Goodreads or something, um, it's a dark place, Simba, we don't go there. But if you are there and you start to look at, you know, the way books are categorised, you'll often see, you know, fantasy, LGBTQ, science fiction, blah, 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 and, and a list of, you know, possible categories, I guess, that, that books can belong to. I think when we're talking about um, terminology, like, for instance, I'm comfortable defining my novel as a lesbian romance, a sapphic novel, a paranormal romance, queer YA, um, and so on. But other authors may or may not be comfortable using those labels either for books or identities. So I think if for people who don't identify as members of the LGBTIQ plus community, um, maybe sticking to that term, that acronym, is a safer way to go than, than using the word queer, which does have a history, of course, as being a derogatory term or being used as a slur. Um, I really like, there's a queer theorist, um, Eve Sedgwick, and I really love her definition of the word queer and she writes that it's an open mesh of possibilities when the constituent elements of anyone's gender or anyone's sexuality aren't made or can't be made to signify monolithically. So I love the way that she injects this idea of, of openness into this word. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers the question but, but again if people are interested doing some research around the difference between own voices um, narratives and narratives that are written by people who don't identify as members of marginalised groups or communities of any kind is probably a good place to start. Um, and for people who don't know, the, the own voices hashtag and, and term um, was coined by Corinne Dubas, who's a, a writer from the Netherlands. Um, and again, it has, it has its own set of problems associated with it. But there is an essential difference, I think, between people who identify as LGBTQI plus writing books and stories with those uh, with characters who identify similarly in them, and people who write from outside of that subject position. Mm. Does that help at all? It does. Um, it it doesn't clear it up, but you know what? Like, I'm I'm not expecting any any neat answers anyway, and that's why we're having this discussion and it's just nice to have an open discussion about it um and and know that i'm in a safe space and i'm probably going to get things wrong time to time but you're um very forgiving so thank you for that um and i guess knowing that that queer fiction or queer sci-fi fantasy does have its problems i'll still just i guess i'll, I'll continue to use that throughout um but when it comes to to queer or lgbtq fiction like is it just that there's a queer person that's the main character that's in a relationship or are there other kind of themes and um, and conventions that you've you've kind of noticed throughout those um, that genre or range of genres? Well, it's so varied. It's um, particularly these days and particularly in YA. So, I mean, I, first of all, I think obviously having a queer character in, in a work of fiction doesn't make that work of fiction queer per se. Um, and, and I think everything depends on 
how queer characters are depicted and represented. And, and the number one question is, are they the protagonist? Mm. And if they're not, then that, that does change things a little bit. I mean, there's, there's a really long history here that, that goes back um, to sort of the late 60s or 70s where in, in young adult fiction, um, if there were gay and lesbian characters and they were only gay and lesbian characters or there were no other, you know, um, possibilities for identification back then, if those characters did appear in those books, they were always punished or, you know, came to a grisly end. And that's where the, the barrier gaze trope comes from. Mm. Um, so there, there, there is a sort of a, a downright kind of homophobic history of representing queer characters in fiction, particularly in young adult fiction. But I think as well as having um, queer characters who are the heroes and the protagonists and the focalizers and the people who tell the story, there's also something about queer fiction in general and YA in particular that is starting to emerge and has been emerging for the last, I think, maybe five years. And it's the existence of this thing that Michael Cart and Christine Jenkins, these, these literary critics who work with YA, they call it queer consciousness or queer community. So in the in the stories that, that I'm reading at the moment and have been for the last few years, the characters who identify as LGBTQIQ plus are not on their own. They're parents, friends, um, mentors, other 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 characters in these stories who are there not just to support these characters, but to help them have a sense of community. Mm. And that's what's new and that's what I think is really exciting. Yeah, there's not that there's not always necessarily that sense of of isolation. Or maybe there is at the start, but then you know it evolves into something that that's a bit more positive. Is that is that what I'm hearing you say? Again, it's really hard to generalise because it, it differs so much between um, contemporary YA, where I think we see a bit more of that going on, um, and sci-fi and fantasy. And, and I'm going to say something really contentious here, which is that I think often in science fiction and fantasy, particularly in fantasy and particularly in um, queer retellings of fairy tales and folk tales, for instance, the worlds, the social worlds that those characters inhabit are actually quite heteropatriarchal and repressive. And the way that the characters negotiate these worlds actually says everything about the adventure that they have to undertake or the, the mm. trials that they have to go through. And I think one of the reasons for that is that um, writers who are writing queer science fiction fantasy are bringing with them the conventions of straight you know, scare quotes, um, science fiction and fantasy with them. And a lot of fantasy novels, as you know, are built on these kind of pseudo-medieval or feudal worlds where the, the dominant social structure is is heteropatriarchal. Mm. Um, I, I, wonder if yeah. that's, I wonder if that's also a case of just art imitating life in a way where that's kind of our society now in a way. It is evolving, but it's still predominantly um dominated by men and and heterosexual men um and particularly say for the last 20 years so you've got writers that have come out living in that kind of world 
And maybe that's why they're writing those stories because those are the struggles that they've gone through and that's how they've tried to negotiate their own adventures. I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating. Um, and I wonder if the way to kind of help society to adjust is start to create those kind of new worlds or other worlds. That, and that's the great thing about sci-fi, right? You get to create new political structures and new ways of doing things and it's all part of the story. And so maybe that's the evolution of of queer sci-fi and fantasy in particular is trying to trying to figure out those societal structures and um and family dynamics and friend dynamics and things like that that are actually going to be a positive supportive environment yeah absolutely so something like um tans and viewers gideon the ninth um imagines a world where uh you know queerness is kind of everywhere it's it's not just tolerated again with the scare quotes um it's actually widely accepted and 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 normalized Mm. and that's really key to how these these newer and more progressive versions of um queer ya science fiction fantasy are working i think you know that sort of thing is important but i also think it's important that we have books like and i'm just going to pull another title out of my hat here um oh something Something like uh, Wild Beauty by Anna Maria McLemore. And so this is a different kind of novel where the queer characters do come up against a bit of resistance and a bit of homophobia. Um, so it's there, it exists, but it shows them overcoming that and and negotiating and also sort of teaching these. This comes from the older people in the family, teaching mm. these older people some things. So I think there are a couple of different ways you can go about it. You can queer the universe entirely Mm. or you can show the universe with vestiges of things that need to be changed and then have your characters go about changing them. Mm. Yeah, I like just as a side note, Gideon the Ninth is one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years. Um, It so is, right? It's fantastic. And the funny thing was like I kind of read it on a lark in a way because the, you know, the, 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 um, log line for it's something like teen lesbian necromancers in space and I was like okay that sounds suitably <laughs> unusual for me um, I'm gonna have a read and it is a lot of fun but it's also like super emotionally impactful um, and I was, I was talking I think it was Amy Ogden um, I, I interviewed about space operas and she brought that one up as well and we were like we were both like oh my god how good is that book so I, I definitely <laughs> recommend anybody to to pick that up um and know that it's a lot of fun but know that you know there's potential tears at the end and um and particularly in harrow the night the next book as well is even more heavy hitting mm-hmm. so um yeah what a what a wonderful example of of fiction that can can really change worlds and change minds at, at, you know and and perceptions as you kind of just go through that journey Agreed. Agreed. I'm a total fan. Yeah. And so, um, like, often I'll, I'll ask people for recommendations of their favourite examples of works in in the genre we're discussing. Um, are there books that say, if someone's like, okay, well, where do I start? Like, what's what's a great queer sci-fi fantasy book that I should should jump into? What would be the first mm-hmm. first book that you would give them as a as a nice gateway drug to jump into that world. Okay. Holds up extensive list. Yeah. How many are I allowed to have? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, okay. So, and, I, and I'll put mm, these in the show notes and things. 
But um, okay. yeah, for those who can't see, Kate's just held up like literally a, a page <laughs> full of full of post-it notes and scribbles and things like that. So let's dive into some some reading candy. All right. So absolute number one on my list, right up there. Um, in fact, I think it actually beats Gideon the Night. Sorry, Gideon. And I've been banging on about this book since it was published. Um, and it's Cinderella is Dead by Kaylin Bayron which is about to be, I think she's just sold the film rights, which is tremendously exciting. So this is a novel that has um, lesbian protagonist, woman of colour as the protagonist and the hero, and no, she's not Cinderella, um, but I'm not going to tell people anything about it because you really just have to experience this for yourself and what a fabulous title, Cinderella is yeah. Dead. But going back to what we were saying before about repressive societies, this is a, a hella repressive society, right? You don't want to grow up here. But the way that Bayron imagines this world, and I suppose I can sketch out the premise, which is that um, Cinderella has become like a god, I guess, in this very heteronormative and patriarchal society. And it's it's one where at a certain age all the girls in the the community in the town are made to go to the ball where they get married off to these older men. They're like chosen by these mm. older men. And if they're not chosen, then, you know, that's that's an undesirable um, thing to have happen to you. So it, it can be quite dark and quite grim, but it's just such a fantastic story, so beautifully told. So Cinderella is Dead comes in number one. What else? There's um, a fabulous Aussie author, Alison Evans, and they've got quite a few novels out now, but my favourite is still their first, which is Ida. Um, and, you know, I, I don't even know how to describe Ida or sum it up in terms of genre. I guess spec fic is probably the, mm. the best. It's, it's genre bending, basically. Um, Funnily enough, you, um, you mentioned them because um, I, I texted a, a um, gay writer who's a friend, Jeremy Lachlan, who I'd interviewed earlier just about general fantasy um, and asked for some of his recommendations. And um, the Jane Doe duology is is one that he wrote that's absolutely fantastic with a, a normalised kind of queer relationship there. But um, he mentioned Alison Evans and he um, said Euphoria Kids. So it's mm. interesting that you've both brought up um, that non-binary writer from Melbourne with two different titles, mm. but saying that, you know, just what a wonderful writer. Incredible. And Euphoria Kids is kind of middle grade um, and, and Ida is, is YA. I was delighted um, to be at the Port Ferry Lit Festival a couple of months back and my daughter, um, my 13-year-old, said, can I have a book? And I'm like, honey, of course you can have a book. You go choose whatever book you like. And without me even recommending anything or steering her in any direction, she just came back with a copy of Ida. Wow. said, I want this one. And I said, okay, I've read that. That's fantastic. You're going to love it. Um, what else can I recommend? What about, oh, They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. What a great title. So, such a good title and such a good premise, mm. you know, a world where death comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, well, you've got one day. <laughs> what are you going to do with it? Um, what else? Oh, my goodness. There's just so much. I have to I have to shout out to a few other interlude press authors. So Julia Embers, The Seafarer's Kiss duology, which is like a lesbian retelling of The Little Mermaid, 
and awesome. uses Norse mythology. And yeah, that's very awesome. And Ruin Song is her new one, which is a queer retelling of the Phantom of the Opera. So yeah, she's fantastic. Phoebe Lee's Not Your Sidekick series is fabulous. And that's that's more sort of the sci-fi superhero subgenre. But it's um it's a rollicking good time. It also has some serious messages in there um, about identity and belonging and so on. And I mean, I could go on and on, Tim, but that will probably do for now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, Jeremy, Jeremy <laughs> said, uh, just another like one to throw in there. Jeremy's put um more than this by Patrick Ness, which was his favorite yeah. queer, queer sci-fi book. Um, yeah. So you know, and funnily enough, I was talking to someone the the other night. Um, they were asking, like, what's one of your favourite? They're like, I really like unusual books. And I was like, okay, well, one of my f- – and and it really speaks to the word queer in kind of all senses of the word is Dahlgren by Samuel Delaney. And I'd, I'd class it as a more adult book, but it is very experimental, unusual, and very long. Um, it, mm. it starts mid-sentence and ends mid-sentence. And it's just – and it involves time travel and it's just really bizarre. Um, and the main characters are a bisexual kind of teenager, but it's very much an adult book. And it's just a wonderful, um, wonderful ride and so incredibly well-written. I believe it was maybe banned in the USA more than once. Um, wow. So, yeah, definitely one to, to look up for people who are interested in, I believe it was, written in the 70s um and he was a queer black writer from um new york i'm pretty sure why have i not heard of this book before all right adds adds to extensive list thank you <laughs> yeah. oh man like anyone <laughs> anyone like me i've got the, the pile of books already on my dresser and then i'm you know, know. talking to people getting lists and my kindle to read is just a joke so um at yeah. least at least those authors are are getting their royalties because i'm buying them even even though half the time i'm not reading them that's that's how i justify it as well you know i'm not going to be able to read the stack of novels but i'm supporting other authors so that's the <laughs> thing um i think for people who are interested too there are so many great bloggers and reviewers and um you know tumblr sites and and one of my favorites is reads rainbow and it's just readsrainbow.com and they have extensive lists and recommendations and and categories of of different um books and, and films and music actually but but with the books you can kind of pick which which particular point of view you'd like to to read from so for instance if women loving women novels is your thing there's a section for that if um uh you know, if uh, non-binary or trans characters are really central to what you would like your reading experience to be, there's a, a section and a list for those kinds of books. So it's a really great resource. That one and um, LGBTQ Reads are my two go-tos when I'm, I'm looking for things. Mm. Yeah, and like generally mm. my advice too is just give stuff a go. And that's part of what this podcast is about is talking to to other writers who are like, okay, well, what's great in your genre? So hopefully people who have never read this genre before are like, oh, I'm just going to give this a try. Um, and, you know, I'm often really delightfully surprised with, with what comes out of it. And I'm looking at perspectives that I haven't thought of before and story ideas that I've kind of just never even invented my mind. And it's a really way to broaden broaden those horizons and um 
and get an interesting reading experience. You might go back to reading, you know, your thriller or your biography or whatever it is that you normally read, but it's always great to step outside that comfort zone and and read something a little bit different. Absolutely. And hey, it's the only way to travel during lockdown, right? Oh my gosh. So we're recording this and Melbourne's just gone into, literally just gone into its sixth sixth lockdown. Sydney's in a, I don't know how many day lockdown. I feel incredibly fortunate to be in rural Western Australia right now where we've been been fairly untouched. But um, yeah, I suppose that's the silver lining. There's, there's more reading time um, and more writing time. Absolutely. And that's what reading's for, isn't it? To take us places we've never been before. Well, that's right. Um, and so what what's on your what's on your nightstand now? Like what are you what are you really diving into and, and reading and enjoying? At the moment, I've just started um, Nancy Business, which is the second in the um, the Nancy's uh, I should know this, I'm not sure if it's a trilogy or duology, um, by RWR McDonald, mm-hmm. um, who's a Kiwi. And it's um it's it's crime, but it's also comedy, and it's I, I don't even know how to describe these books, but they're so fabulous. So I read the Nancys a while ago. Really excited um, to read the sequel. So I'm reading Nancy business. I've also just finished um, the Labyrinth by Amanda Lowry that just won the Miles Franklin, okay. um, and that is images from that novel are still just right, you know, in the forefront of my brain when I go about anything that I do in my day I just keep seeing those characters and so that that's that's amazing um and I'm also reading um uh, Underland um a, a deep time journey which is fabulous and, and not fiction but it's a um I've gone completely blank on the author of Underland which is shows that we're recording this on a Friday afternoon but um but we you know you go <laughs> <laughs> you go from the, the catacombs under Paris to um, the way that, that fungi join up with tree roots and join the forest together underneath forests to the limestone caves in the north of Italy. Um, and it's just tremendously good. Yeah, unreal. So, so strangely enough, yeah, <laughs> eclectic. Yeah. Yeah, well, very eclectic. And I think um, there's probably people who are reading this cringing going, I can't read more than one book at once. Like, <laughs> how are you juggling three or four titles at one time? And I like, I'm, I always say, look, I listen to one audio book, um, one fiction book, and maybe if I'm reading a third book, it's nonfiction. And that's how I can separate mm. it. Because otherwise, yeah. someone will ask me about a book and I go, oh, and this happened and that happened. And they're like, I don't think that was the same book that you're thinking about and I'm I'm mashing stories together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's yeah. the way. I'm like you. The only way I can do it is if I'm reading in radically different genres and so I've got, you know, crime, nonfiction, and I've just put down literary fiction. Otherwise, if I, if I was reading three science fiction novels side by side, um, you're right, that, that osmosis would happen and it would make the reading experience less pleasurable and I think it would also not do justice to the, the books themselves mm. so yeah and so now we know what you're reading what are you writing at the moment have you started something new are you are you working on a number of things that it's a, is it articles is it what what are you um what are you writing at the moment I am writing a I think I'm writing a dystopian thriller but I'm also I think I'm calling it a dark or a dystopian bildungsroman and it's um, 
it's set in a future Australia in a world where xenotransplantation has become not just um, uh, accepted but, but commonplace. And xenotransplantation, for people who don't know, is um, the use of animal organs and tissues in human recipients. So, just so I didn't might. know. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is that actually happening or is that just something that you're you're thinking might happen in yeah, the future? It's absolutely happening. So, um, for instance, in the US, uh, you can now get skin grafts from pigs where they the pig skin used to be used as what's called a bridging graft. So when your own skin grew underneath it, they would take the pig, pig skin away and throw it away. But now it's it's left to fuse with your own skin. So, you know, we're all chimeric if we wear glasses or if we've got metal implants somewhere in our bodies or if we've got, um, you know, pig eyelets or pancreases or heart valves or whatever it is. But the way the research is going and the holy grail for biomedical scientists is whole organ transplant. Mm. And it's research that's been around since the 1700s and they keep, you know, putting moratoria on it and embargoing it in various countries. But it's very close to being a reality. For example, there's um, research coming out of the University of Sydney where um, kangaroo tendons are going to be used as replacements for cruciate ligaments in um, in athletes. Yeah. So the yeah, I wonder if it's that's like going to be street legal for Olympians in the in the future. It's like no, you actually got kangaroo tendons put in on purpose because they're stronger and faster. Well, see, this is this is where the mind goes, right? Mm. You know what what's going to become of us and and what's what is the impact of that then on the human black market in organ you know the human organ trade mm. is that going to make that any better any but like and i'm coming at it from kind of an animal rights perspective so i don't think we should be doing it at all but it, the, the human bioethics of this are incredibly interesting as well because if you for example would be unfortunate enough to need a liver transplant you get one from a pig you're on immunosuppressant medication for the rest of your life. You're under medical surveillance for the rest of your life because of the threat of zoonotic disease. Mm. Um, all your partners have to be tested regularly to make sure you haven't passed anything on. You can't reproduce. Wow. And all of this stuff is in the scientific literature. So when I'm not bouncing between those other books on the nightstand, I'm traumatising myself by reading scientific literature on xenotransplantation. Have you watched? As you do. Yeah, as you do. As you do. <laughs> I like, oh man, like some of the research things that I type into Google at some point, and I'm like, I hope no one's like actually, like, f forget like porn searches and stuff that are embarrassing. It's just like things that you write in to, to figure oh, no. out, um, like a storyline or something like that. Um, I was going to say. Right, ACO know you're a published yeah. author, so they've probably got that next to your name on the watch list. Oh, yeah, he's a writer. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's, yeah, he's, he's Googling about guns and ammunition and, you know, I, and I, I, I did that to get it right as well. Um, I was going to say, do you, um, have you read or um, watched um, Sweet Tooth? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so I absolutely. Yeah, just recently. Yeah, I just finished it last night and absolutely loved it. Um, so for those who haven't, it's, you know, there's like hybrids, animal-human hybrid children in it, um, and it goes through and it's based on a comic book by Jeff Lemire, who is an amazing comic book um, writer and artist. Mm -hmm. If um, The Underwater Welder is another one of his that's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, so 
Yeah, and now Kate's scribbling that down as well, just for something <laughs> else to, <laughs> to add to the nightstand. You caught me. Yeah. How but... do you know that when you can't see me, Tim? <laughs> um, okay, the underwater wellness. Thank you. Yeah, really. Like, yeah, I, I thought that was magnificently written and mm. just, yeah, so yeah. good. Really beautiful. And and as a parent too, I think it, it emotionally hits home, you know, really hard um, mm. because these kids are, are vilified and you just, you're like, oh my God, they're just kids. Like, how do we, how do we move away from that? And um, yeah, really, really timely yeah. and, and really great. So there's, you know, just another, another thing for people to, to look at if, if they haven't checked it out yet. Um, yeah. And I was going to, I was going to ask when um, you're talking about what you're writing and um, you're trying to, you start to class it in a genre and then, but maybe it's a, a Bildungsroman, like knowing so many genres and, and intimately, like, do you, do you get confused? And like, I know, like when I write something, I'm like, I don't even know what genre this is. And then I try and figure it out at the end, what the best one is to, to fit it, you know, fit it into that kind of semi little pigeonhole. Um, like, do, do you get confused as you go along? Like, how do you think about genre? Or like, you're like, no, these are the conventions I've got to hit and this is what I've got to do. Really confused. Really confused. <laughs> a friend asked me the other day and she said, so you're writing science fiction? And I said, no. And then I went, well, hang on. <laughs> you know, it's all about the science. It's all about yeah. the research and, and about the ramifications of that. Um, no, I think for me it's very much about the story and about the characters and then I will retrofit genre after the fact when I'm thinking about pitching it. So originally I had thought of this as Jane Eyre meets Never Let Me Go. Mm. And then I went, actually, no, I don't think that's what it is at all. But it is it is definitely a story of development, central character from childhood to adulthood in this crazy mixed up world where, you know, no one kind of knows what's what's ethically okay anymore because people have being presented with really limited options. Mm. Um, so I. So it's sci-fi coming of age. Foreclose, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't <laughs> want to foreclose on the manuscript, which is only you know at thirty thousand odd words mm. at the moment, by trying to corral it into some kind of genre or, or mixture of genres. But I know eventually I'm going to have to face that question, which is, you know, for marketability, where does it actually sit? And I think most writers struggle with that unless you know exactly what genre you're writing in from the get-go yeah and I I, like I often wonder if genre writers like a James Patterson who's just known for thrillers and that's kind of all he ever does Mm. whether there's a sense of comfort in that because it's like cool I know what I'm doing and and you know you full steam ahead and maybe that is the case because he seems to come out with a book every five minutes but um you know or whether that's it's almost like you're typecast as an actor and that's that's the only role you can ever play and the only role you'll ever be able to to kind of sell because um, to me I, that that feels a little bit horrifying to, to just be able to write one genre and one thing. Um, and I suppose you know we're not we're not in that position to be able to to say whether or not it is. Um, but yeah, I mean have you, Ken Follett's an actually a great example of someone who he wrote spy thrillers. And the work that I know him best for, and I think is probably his best work, is Pillars of the Earth, which is about building churches. Uh, it's like a mm. medieval drama set around the building of a cathedral over a couple of hundred years. 
And there's someone who's really stepped out of their their comfort zone and absolutely smashed it. I think it might even be his best-selling book. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I have immense admiration for people who can who can do that. You know, authors who have got those sections at the front of their book, you know, author of, and then there are five picture storybooks, and then there's six poetry collections, and then for adults, for younger readers. But, but I wonder what kind of toll that takes on you kind of emotionally <laughs> and intellectually in the end. Like, I, yeah, I don't know if I can stray too far away from, um, I think it's going, this new one is upper YA, maybe crossover, but I'm still very much in that YA space. Mm. And, and are you, stu- are you still building sapphic romance? Well. Yeah, I was going to say, you're still building yeah. a sapphic romance yeah. into that. Like, do you feel like that's that's um, a groove that you're really, really happy with and that's where you can sing yeah. the best? Yeah, slow burn this time. There were some comments on Goodreads about From Darkness that, you know, the girls fall in love too quick. I felt like writing back going, have you met real lesbians? But um, (laughs) no, this one one will be slow burn because of the way, you know, the way the story progresses, but also because I think that's a good way to keep people turning pages while I very sneakily slide the world building stuff in, you know, Mm. behind it. Um, What are you working on, Tim? I think you mentioned when we were chatting that, You've got something ready to go, or it is out in the world, or yeah, it's about no, it's, to be. It's it's with an agent at the moment, so we'll see what happens there. But um, it's uh, I don't even. It's a cyberpunk thriller is probably the best way to describe it. So, like a cross between Snow Crash and Silence of the Lambs, or something like that. Um, which oh my goodness, is probably an unusual and and mixed. But if anyone who knows me, they're like, oh, that's so you. Um, so, <laughs> which is kind of, it's, it's scary sometimes because you're like, is it really? Oh, I didn't think I was that strange. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't. This, that sounds so fabulous. <laughs> but this isn't about me anyway. It's about you. So if people want to, if people want to stay in touch with what you're doing, um, and find out like the updates of, of how things are coming along and when you're releasing new things, what's the best way for people to to find you and interact with you? Um, so probably Insta. I tend to be pretty slack on Facebook and Twitter. Um, and I tried TikTok and then I deleted it pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> um, I may get back on, I don't know, but Insta is um, Kate underscore Hazel underscore Hall author. Um, pretty sure that's what my Insta handle is. Or the website is katehazelhall.com. And is the Hazel, the Hazel's in there, is that because there is, there's already a famous playwright or something that's Kate Hall as well? There's a another YA author who writes sapphic young adult science fiction and fantasy. Oh, you're kidding. So that that was fun when we, the publisher and I sat down to, to decide what we would do about that. So in the end, I, I don't have a middle name, so I had to pick one. And I, I went with Hazel to, to honour um, my literature lecturer, Hazel Rowley, who passed away um, some years ago and for whom I had great admiration. Actually, I had a crush on her. And so that's that's where the Hazel comes from. Wow. What and I know it makes story. me sound like, you know, <laughs> well, it's the truth. Yeah, well, like I love, you know, I love stories like that. So Kate Hazel Hall, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to re-record the... Um, the beginning to to say Kate Hazel Hall. Um, it's like there's so many interesting stories like that. Like there's um, 
and I, I might mess this up, but there's Sarah Douglas, who's one of the greatest um, Australian fantasy writers ever. Mm-hmm. And I'm fairly certain her real name isn't Sarah Douglas. I think it was like McCarthy or something like that. And the publisher said, and this is before um, digital for Amazon and everything. They're like, no, we want, you need to be, your last name needs to be either A, B, C or D because otherwise it's too far down the shelf and nobody sees it. So wow. let's let's change your last name. So she changed it to Douglas to be at the eye line site of uh, the bookshelf in the bookstores. That's amazing. So That's so interesting, and it, and obviously paid off. Although Sarah Douglas's work stands on its own merit, but isn't I'd never thought about that before the alphabetical organization of books on shelves in stores. Yeah, so there's like all these really interesting things. And I often wonder about initials and things like that, Um, you know, like um, J.K. Rowling and V.E. Schwab and, you know, particularly female authors using like whether or not those initials were were used so that they would sound either like a man or just ambiguous so that it wouldn't put put people off because I feel like I've heard those stories quite a bit. and then I asked oh, Pete, Peter. It goes back to the Brontes, doesn't it? It's got a long, and, and earlier, got a long history, pseudonym thing for women writers. Absolutely. That's right. And the, but the, you know, you've got J.R.R. Tolkien and I asked Peter, Peter V. Brett, who's P.V. Brett on everything. I'm like, does any, he's like, no, that's just how I've signed my name always. And that's just how it is. Um, mm. So, yeah, I find find those kind of just little tidbits of of, I guess, marketing and it all kind of feeds into the whole genre thing it's like how people perceive what they're about to read before they even open the book and there's probably a a good kind of loop back into book covers and and things like that um is we all read a book from its cover and you know i guess hopefully hopefully these discussions are, are um are highlighting some books that maybe you would have glanced past otherwise and now you you might stop and put your hand out to the shelf and and pick one of those up that you might not have otherwise so um that might be a good good place to to wrap it up kate thank you so much for um for catching up it's been so great and i can't wait to go home at some point when when we can all travel and we can catch up for for one of those expertly poured beers at some point (laughs) thank you tim what an absolute delight thanks for having me on the show Hi, this is Tim. I just wanted to say thanks so much for listening. Also, a massive thanks to Johnny Hawken for the intro and outro music, Sarah Bervenage for the podcast artwork, and the authors and publishers who make this show possible. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice, give us a shout-out on social media, or leave a review on iTunes. If you'd like to reach out to me personally to say hi, you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter at Tim underscore Hawken. That's at T-I-M underscore H-A-W-K-E-N. Or you can even head to timhawken.com and get a free copy of the first book in my Hellbound trilogy by signing up to my newsletter. For a roundup of all the episodes and recommendations, you can also head to timhawken.com forward slash genre wars. Thanks again for listening and happy reading.
go Please stay with me Warm I don't want the cold I'll stay Some comforting Don't push me over I'm not fighting free Fade Fading with the sun Some comfort.